0: Our call to confession this morning comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. There we read, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. When I was uh, young, one of my favorite toys uh, was G.I. Joe. I would play with G.I. Joe Uh, non-stop, and they're action figures, not dolls, but action figures. And I would set them up in my basement. I would have ridiculous scenarios play out, multiple-day campaigns where G.I. Joe and Cobra are locked in a never-ending battle for supremacy over my basement. And every Sunday, Saturday morning, every Saturday morning, I used to love to watch uh, the G.I. Joe cartoon. Um, I can still see the intro playing in my mind. Um, I, I, I loved it, I loved G.I. Joe. And every episode, um, every episode ended with a helpful PSA. So if you're of a certain age, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. A, a G.I. Joe character would come on uh, and he would walk you through some real life scenario, some dangerous scenario, where he would give you information. Maybe it's a house fire. Maybe your friend choked on a hot dog at a party. Maybe uh, a toddler fell into a pool. All these things that, that you, as a, as a loyal G.I. joe uh might run into, G.I. Joe wanted to make sure that you were equipped to handle that situation. And, and it would always end with this tagline that knowing is half the battle, right? Now you know, and knowing is half of the battle. Bring that up. Not because Ezra was a G.I. Joe, he was not, but because Ezra knows the word, right? If you've read through the book of Ezra, uh, Ezra is presented as this skilled scribe in the word of God. He knows God's word. In fact, he had set himself to study and to know it. But Ezra had not just set himself to study and to know the word of God, but he had also set himself to do it and to teach others to do it as well. Right? In, a, in a very kind of interesting way, Ezra is a, a living embodiment of knowing really is only half of the battle. right? Knowing the word is part of it, but Ezra puts it into practice and then Ezra teaches other people how to put it into practice as well. He doesn't just sit there with his, uh, his enlarged intelligence, uh, this encyclopedic understanding of the law of God. He sets out to do what he knows, and to communicate what he knows so that others will do it as well. It's not too difficult uh, to see the connection to us as well. Right? The call of Christianity is not just a call to know Christ. It certainly is a call to know Christ. We are called to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. That's what Peter says in the end of his second letter. I pray that you would grow in your knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. But knowing is only half of the battle. right? We're called not only to know Christ, but we're called to obey Christ. We're called to do what Christ calls us to do. If we call on him as Lord and Savior, then he is our Lord and Savior. And we're called to walk in in obedience to the commands of Christ. But it's not just walking in uh, in obedience to the commands of Christ. It's also proclaiming that to others so that they too will come to know Christ, obey Christ, and proclaim Christ. See, we're to be like Ezra. People who are skilled in our knowledge and understanding of the word set ourselves not only to know it, but set ourselves to do it and set ourselves also to proclaim it. So we cannot be people who stop at simply knowing Jesus. And I know, taken out of context, that's a rather interesting phrase, to stop at simply knowing Christ. But we wanna know Christ, we wanna obey Christ, and we want to proclaim Christ. And we proclaim Christ, of course, not only in our words, but we proclaim Christ in how we live as well. So even our obedience to Jesus itself becomes a proclamation of who Christ is. So as we come before the Lord this morning and we have the opportunity because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his kindness to confess our sins before him, to lay them out before him, knowing that we are forgiven in Christ, let us lay before him the times in which we have stopped at just knowing Jesus and have him pressing deeper into obeying Christ and proclaiming Christ as well. So if you are able this morning, would you please kneel with me as we confess our sins? Now I'm hoping that um, most of you I uh, got the email that I sent out earlier this week referencing uh, the amount of scripture that we'll be looking at this morning. And I say that recognizing that we have quite a few guests here this morning uh, because of Andrew and Julia and their family. And so they're, they're at a disadvantage because uh, there's not going to be any makeup time. If you didn't have it read when you came, that's on you. You, you should have known beforehand, but we'll try to work you through it. Um, but we are going to be looking at Genesis 29, 31, all the way uh, to 31:55, and the reason we're doing that, uh, the reason we're just lots of reasons actually, that we're looking at such a large chunk of scripture. One is um, trying to make some headway. We've got we've got Advent on the horizon, Lord willing. We've got Daniel Ralph on the horizon, so trying to move through uh, Genesis and get to a place where maybe we can wrap up before Advent and and before Daniel comes. Uh, second reason is because as we look at this, it really just kind of moves together as a wonderful unit, just kind of tied together thematically, linguistically, just kind of pushing together, and, and to kind of break it up into little sections uh, to make it more digestible for ourselves just didn't seem appropriate. Um, really, we get, we get to in this moment, uh, in looking at this passage, and, and we'll get into certain portions of it together, but we get to in this moment to just kind of take in uh, um, 20 years of, of Jacob's life. Like, like we get to just kind of drink that in, in and, and, and this passage of Scripture, and just kind of watch that unfold uh, in, in all of its kind of wondrous little twists and turns, which uh, the life of the patriarchs, especially Jacob, seems to be full of. And, and as we look at this, uh, we can really kind of, kind of put it in big three big movements uh, that, that can further be separated, but three big movements that we see here in the text, and, and that is we, we see Jacob's, uh, the birth of Jacob's children— Uh, we see Jacob's uh, financial prosperity, uh, and then we see his return to the land, his his flight from Laban. Um, And and as we look at these uh, kind of in this wide, big kind of 10,000-foot flyover, um, what what I'm hoping for us to kind of gather from this uh, is is at least, one, to see um, the promises of God at work in the life of Jacob. Uh, We see that Jacob becomes a recipient of the the Abrahamic covenant, God speaks those promises over him. And then we see the, those promises worked out in the midst of these 20 years uh, as they have been. And we saw maybe in, in shorter snippets in the life of Abraham and essentially, assist, uh, not essentially, especially in the life of Isaac, who was just kind of like a blip. But then we also we also just kind of see um, we kind of just see how God works in life. Uh, as, I think as I was reading through this and as I was thinking through this, I, that was the, the thing that struck me the most, is how God just works in the midst of life. Uh, we, we tend to kind of want sensational, right? We, we, uh, we we're kind of bred on uh, instant gratification and on, uh, uh, you know, our senses being enticed in a way. Like uh, I, I, I travel a lot with TLI and I always laugh because uh, the movies I choose to watch on the plane are always just action movies, where it's, it's literally just one thing blowing up, and you're trying to find some way to get from that, that one thing that blew up to the next thing that's going to blow up. And I like those movies, one, because they just kind of keep my attention, because who doesn't like to see stuff blow up? And two, because those movies, you can always fall asleep and wake up at any other point in the movie, and you've missed nothing. <laughs> you've abs- you, you have, you, there's no need to catch back up. You, you, it's like, all right. I guess I, I missed a few things blow up, but sure enough, there's going to be some more stuff that blows up here in a moment, right? And 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 we we are this kind of this kind of uh, people who we like that we like we like the sensational, we want the the majestic, the powerful, uh, the eye-catching, the, the 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 earth-shattering, and yet. <laughs> So often that's not how God works, right? We get the sensation sometimes that's the way he works in the Bible because we get to move from points in people's lives to other points in people's lives. So we get this impression maybe from Abraham that like, God's just always showing up at his house to eat. Like, oh, this is, this is, this is typical Tuesday. Uh, here comes God and two angels to have lunch with me. That's not how it happened, right? And, and so we get the sensation sometimes that, that there's always like these miraculous things happening. But, but the truth is God often just works within the context of life. You know, he's the still small whisper instead of the, the thunder and the lightning. He's, the, he's, he's working in the mundane aspects of it. And, and so I think as we, I hope, as we kind of work through this, this story together, we'll, we'll see that uh, and, and we'll actually appreciate it and, and understand in a greater way how that reality that God works in the midst of life infuses our life and every aspect of it with, with eternal meaning and purpose. Uh, and I think that's a good thing for us to know and to understand this morning. So as we come to the text this morning, let's, let's pray to prepare ourselves, shall we? Uh, Father in heaven, we come before you and we are thankful for this opportunity to enter into your word. We are thankful that you are a good and gracious God. We are thankful that you are sovereign, that you are working things out according to your purpose and your plan. Uh, we are thankful that the stupidity of man and our foolishness and our folly cannot undo what you are doing. Uh, We cannot stop you. We cannot thwart you. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can thwart you. And we rejoice in that, Father. We rejoice in that because your plan is good. Uh, Your plan is perfect. Your plan is for your glory. It is for our salvation and for our good. And so we rejoice that nothing can stop you. And so, Father, as we look at the text, may we be reminded of that yet again. May we be reminded of your sovereignty. May we be reminded of your goodness. May we be reminded of your grace. May we be reminded of your provision. Uh, and may we be reminded that we are called all the more to trust in you uh, through Christ, who is our Savior. And so, Lord, speak to us this morning, for we are listening in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're looking, I I've really i have titled this sermon, and, and I, I hate titling my sermons. I'm, uh, I promise you, I am the least creative individual in the world. I have tried multiple times. I have five children, so that's five times of trying to be creative to do creative things. And I think the most creative I ever got was I used to take my children's apples or sandwiches and carve them into their names. So uh, like I would carve a sandwich up so, but then they're like, who wants a sandwich that says Madeline? And you're eating like little pieces of a a sandwich. So I'm not very creative. So I hate titling my sermons, but I've called this one the humiliation of Jacob. And it's because I really do think that in a lot of ways, God is just, he's taking Jacob and through this time with Laban, he's he's putting him into the grinder, so to speak. Uh, to work on him, uh, to work in him, uh, f- so that uh, God can continue to work through him uh, as he has purposed and planned. And so as we come to chapter 29, beginning in verse 31, uh, we find out that Jacob's family does not start off on a good foot. Now, we've been prepped and prepared for family dysfunction as we've walked through the Abrahamic narrative, right? It's, it's almost everywhere we look, we've got family dysfunction, and we're not surprised to find it yet again, now we already know that there is tension in this complex and we could even say crowded marriage relationship of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Uh, it's uh, the nature of which is really summarized uh, in verse 30 where it says that he, Jacob, loved Rachel more than Leah. Uh, but as bad as that sounds in verse 30, uh, it only kind of gets worse than 31. Uh, as we move into verse 31, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... Uh, so what we find in verse 31 is that uh, this situation is not one of kind of like, uh, I, I prefer one over the other, or I kind of drawn to one over the other. This is a situation where, where Jacob is, is essentially giving no preference whatsoever to Leah. Right? Remember, she is, she's, she's the unwanted one, right? Uh, Jacob served seven years to get beautiful Rachel. He wakes up in the morning and hit, to his surprise, it's Leah. This is not what he labored for. This is not the one he wanted. This is not the one he spent seven years pining after, who, who, who made work seem as if it was nothing. And so Leah is the unwanted wife. And, and that's not just something that's true in his thoughts. That's not just something that's true in his, in his person. It's, it's true in the way that he treats her. It's true in the way that he engages Leah. He hates Leah. He has little to no regard for her. It is a one-sided relationship, and it's focused on Rachel. Rachel. But God sees this and God responds to this situation and he opens the womb of Leah while keeping Rachel barren. Again, we know from the context of the Abrahamic narrative the importance of having children, of producing offspring. This story began with a barren Sarah. Uh, We moved into a barren Rebekah whom Isaac prayed for and she bore children. And now we find that God is refusing children to the loved wife and he is opening the womb of the hated wife so that this in turn leads to this uh, childbearing competition, right? Leah takes the early lead as she produces four sons for Jacob who are in order, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and with each birth of a child, Leah hopes that bearing children for Jacob will turn his affection away from Rachel and onto her. It's, it's really heartbreaking as you read through it and you, you see this woman who knows how her husband views her and is just hoping that with each son that she gives to him, that will draw him closer and closer to her and affection. But what we find is that each time her hopes are dashed And she eventually, with the birth of Judah, it seems, comes to some kind of resolution where she's no longer pining for her husband's affection necessarily but has become content in God's gracious hand upon her. So that if we look at 29, verse 35, it says, And she, that's Leah, conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So not wanting to be outdone by her sister, Right, a position that Rachel has not known throughout her life. She looks at her husband and gives to her, gives to him, her maidservant Bilhah to be a wife for Jacob, so that she. Rachel can have children through Bilhah. Again, we've seen this happen before where Abraham listened to the voice of his wife and he took Hagar. And we already know that this doesn't always work out very well. And as we walk through the story, we know that this is not the, the, the ideal way for things to happen. This is not God saying, hey, this is how families should look. But really, it's a testament to God's ability to work through a family that looks like this. Right? It's, it's a testament to God's sovereignty to work through a family that looks like this where Rachel is giving Bilhah. So Bilhah goes into Jacob and she conceives and gives two sons, Dan and Naphtali. When I was studying, I went into my wife. Uh, well, that's an odd phrase to use in this context. When I was studying, I went to speak to my wife. And I said to her, uh, I, I am the offspring of Bilhah. And she said, no, you're not. We shall never know the truth. So Bilhah gives two sons to Jacob, Dan, and Ephtali, And then we come back again, ping-ponging back and forth between wives and between children. And so Leah seeing that, that she stopped bearing and that she's not having children, she in turn does what her sister does. And she takes Zilpah, her handmaiden, and she gives Zilpah to Jacob to bear children. And two more sons are born, Gad and Asher. And then we have this situation that's, that's eerily reminiscent of what we see between Jacob and Esau where Jacob is bartered uh, with some mandrakes. Look with me at chapter 30, verses 14 through 18. Uh, I, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. Just let's go ahead and have our Bible open to 29 to 31 as we kind of engage the text. So if we look at 14 through 18, it says, In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband, Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went to him and to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name Issachar. Again, this is not recorded because this is how a marriage relationship should function. This is recorded as a testament to God's grace, goodness and sovereignty. This this is this is unnerving to say the least that that these two sisters are are trading Uh, opportunity with Jacob over mandrakes. Now, mandrakes were seen in the ancient Near East not only as an aphrodisiac, but also as a means to cure barrenness. So there's probably some reason here that Rachel wants these mandrakes because she's been barren, right? She still has not borne any children. So she's maybe hoping that this will be the ticket uh, to get children. And it also makes it clear that, that Jacob is, whenever he can, denying Leah her conjugal rights as a husband. It's also unnerving that Jacob sees no problem with this whatsoever like he's out in the field working this kind of backdoor deal is happening at home and then he comes home and Leah just approaches him and says, listen this is what you've got to do you've got to come lay with me tonight and you can almost I mean you can almost see Jacob just go well I I guess that's what we're doing tonight. And he just, there's, there's no correction. There's no leadership. There's no guiding his family and trying to, to seek resolution in this relationship or bring healing to it. He just goes with it. And so in a way, he's kind of modeling the actions and the attitude we see from his father, Isaac, who, who really at, at some point just became kind of just a, a disconnected leader, a disconnected dad who was just in the home eating his son's food and happy and content to do so. And so we have another son that is born in Issachar. And then uh, as we move on in the story, Leah conceives again and gives birth to a sixth son, Zebulon. And then this section closes in verse 22 with God remembering Rachel, and he listened to her cries for a child, and he opens her womb and she conceives and gives birth to a son. And if we look at verses 22 through 23, it says, "Then God remembered Rachel, and he listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away from me my repro- reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, this scenario, right, this un- kind of crazy uh, child-bearing marathon actually ends on a little bit of a good note. Uh, It would appear that if Rachel was trying to get those mandrakes in order to produce a child, she doesn't credit the mandrakes with the production of a child. She recognizes God as opening her womb, and she names her son in expectation of another son yet to come. May God add to me yet another. And so in the span of uh, chapter 29, 31 through 30, 24, Jacob has 11 sons and one daughter born to him. So his time in Padan Aram... This is is the, the increase of his offspring. And as we think about this, just within the context of Genesis, we understand that part of God's covenantal promises to Abraham is that he would have a multitude of offspring. Right? God takes Abraham outside and he says, look up to the stars of the heaven. Count the stars if you can. Spoiler alert, you can't. And God says, if you can number them, so shall your offspring be. Look at the, the sand of the seashore, the dust of the earth. If you can number these things, so shall your offspring be. And so God promises nations and kingdoms and peoples to come from Abraham. And yet it's really been a slow trickle. I mean, we had a, a 25-year wait for Isaac. And, and we had, we had um, oh gosh, well I can't think of his name. <laughs> This is, this is one of the most embarrassing things that happens. Uh, his, his, the Hagar, uh, Ishmael, thank you, sorry. We have Isaac and, and Ishmael, but we know Ishmael's not, the, the, the line is not to be known through Ishmael, yet he is offspring. Uh, and then we have Isaac who has Jacob and Esau, Uh, And and so it would seem like this promise of a multitude of offspring is really taking some time to come about because now we're about here, most likely a a little over 100 years or more from the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But now all of a sudden in this this one span right here with Jacob, we have 11 children that are born to Jacob. And so the promise of God for offspring, the promise of God to, to fill the earth to the north, the south, and the east, and the west as he spoke to Jacob is now really starting to get some feet underneath it literally speaking like 6 uh, uh, 11 times 2 is 22 22 feet underneath it as 20 as 11 sons are added to to Jacob and so we see the promise of God start to work out in the life of Jacob in the t- in the context of offspring and we actually start to see it take a pretty big step forward that God is pushing it forward in this time as we move into uh, the kind of the second section that first is 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 Jacob's family and his offspring. That second section, looking at his material wealth, uh, the connection between these two sections really is is kind of undeniable. Uh, If we look at verse 25 of chapter 30, it says, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my home and my country. So as soon as he has this, this child from Rachel, as soon as his favorite wife, bears him a son, Jacob now takes stock of all things and decides that it's time to leave, it's time to move out. Now, it's telling that again, Jacob has to take the initiative. He has to come to Laban and say, send me away, let me go, release me. Right? Remember when Jacob worked, worked seven years for uh, Rachel, Jacob had to go to Laban and say, give me my wife. Laban knew the time was up, right? But what we've learned about Laban so far is he really doesn't have any intention of honoring all the deals and the, um, the agreements that he makes. He wants to milk everything he can for his benefit and for his good. And so here <coughs> we get the impression that Jacob's time of service has come to an end. And instead of Laban coming to him and releasing him and sending him away as a father-in-law should to return to his home and to return to his country, Jacob has to come to his father-in-law and demand his release. Right? It makes clear that Laban has actually no interest in letting Jacob go. And this is confirmed as we move on in the story because Jacob come, or Laban comes to Jacob and tells him, listen, I've learned through divination <laughs> that I'm getting blessed because of you. Like your presence here is actually working out rather well financially for me. Right now, if we ever had any questions about Laban's character, it really gets exposed here, right? His willingness to use divination is a clear sign of his remaining pagan nature. Uh, also the fact that he still has household gods as we see later in the story. And so Laban doesn't have any intention of letting Jacob go. He doesn't want to let him go because he is greatly benefiting from Jacob's presence. Now again, within the context of the Abrahamic blessings, this makes sense to us. God told Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's a sense in which the very presence of the patriarchs is a blessing to those who are around them. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the ways in which the church throughout the history of the church has blessed the communities and the countries and the peoples in which the church grew and flourished. Right? We, look at, we look at the history of Western civilization, Western civilization and, and every advance and every, and every high point, we can almost point to the church and go, that's the church you know, uh, pushing for education. I, I mean, that's, that's the church pushing for reform. That's the church pushing for, for justice for people. Like we look at these high points and we see the blessings of the church on the nations around them. Conversely, uh, when I go to India or Africa and you see rampant uh, uh, corruption, persistent rampant corruption. And I speak with my Indian and African friends and, and we talk about why. why. Why is it that this country is mired in these things? And, and one of the conclusions we clearly come to is, is the lack of the presence and activity of the church. The lack in the presence and activity of God's people there. And it has, a, it has a direct impact on the society around it. And so Laban or Jacob uh, has a direct impact on those around them. And so Jacob then still uh, pushes and demands uh, that he be released, and Laban, uh, not wanting to let him go and trying to bribe him to stay, looks at him and he says, listen, what what, what can I give you to stay? What should your wages be? What wages shall I give you to get you to stay? But Jacob, it's safe to say at this point, doesn't necessarily trust Laban. He's heard this spiel before. uh, When he said, listen, earlier on, when he said, listen, you're my my family. You shouldn't work for me for free. Name your price. What are your wages? And he agrees for Rachel, and Laban doesn't keep his agreement, so Jacob doesn't really trust him at this point. What's wonderful about Jacob and where we start to see growth, about, uh, growth in Jacob is the way that Jacob responds to Laban. If we go back to chapter 30, uh, and we come around verse uh, 30 of chapter 30, this is how uh, Jacob responds. Uh, or back up to 29. You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household? And he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. All right, Jacob, as he says this, echoes the words of his grandfather Abraham as Abraham comes back from rescuing Lot, and the king of Sodom offers to give him from the booty and provide for him. And what does Abraham say to him? You only feed my men and give to my men. Abraham says, don't give me anything. I've put my hand up to the Lord not to take anything from you, lest you might say, I have made Abraham rich. Abraham didn't want to trust himself to the generosity of man. He wanted to trust himself to the grace of God who made promises to bless him. And I think here Jacob is following suit. He doesn't want to trust in the generosity, certainly not the generosity of Laban but wants to trust in the promises of God, the God who has promised to bless him. Instead, Jacob proposes a deal, a deal that seems all too enticing to Laban. So if we look at verses 31 through 33, this is what he says. (coughs) Excuse me, he said, "'You shall not give me anything, "'but if you will do this for me, "'I will again pass through your flock and keep it. "'Let me pass through all your flock today, "'removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep "'and every black lamb.'" and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. So Jacob says, Here, here's the deal. Let's, let's do this. Uh, this is what you can do. Uh, let me go take all the speckled, spotted, black animals, the, the off-color animals, and let them be mine. Now, the majority of sheep and goats in those days uh, were not speckled and spotted, right? Sheep were typically born white and the vast majority of goats were black. And so this deal seems extremely favorable to Laban because already Jacob's kind of put himself in in, in the minority of of what is going to be produced from these flocks. And so Laban says, this is is good for me. Like, sure, I'll let you do this, this is great. And he agrees to it, but then wanting to ensure that he comes out ahead, what does Laban do? Instead of letting Jacob go through and sort out these animals so that his starting flock is speckled and spotted and black, Laban goes through and he removes all the speckled, the spotted, the striped, and the black, and he gives them to his son and he sends them away on a three-day journey so that the flock that Jacob gets to start with has no speckled or spotted or striped or black animals in it. So again, Laban is just showing his true colors. He's just letting us know the nature of his character. And so he sends his son on a three-day three journey and almost looks at Jacob and says, all right, let's see you. Let's see you do something with this flock. Let, let's see you get your wages out of this flock of animals. Now, I, I stand here before you. <coughs> I am no farmer. I am no herdsman. Uh, I sheared a sheep one time in horticulture class in uh, 1997, I believe was the last time I ever sheared a sheep. And they didn't even give us the real shearers. They gave us the baby ones so that you can't actually hurt the sheep. So that's the only time I've been uh, within spitting distance of a farm animal of that kind. So I can't speak to the scientific nature of Jacob's practice with his flock. But if you read this, you know what he does. Right, he starts to take the animals and he starts to take poplar trees and other trees and starts to peel the bark off and starts to have the animals mate in front of these tree leaves, in front of the, our branches, and so that uh, this flock that starts out white and black starts to give forth speckled and spotted and striped animals. And then Jacob goes further and he takes the stronger ones and he makes them mate in this way so that the stronger ones are becoming the speckled, the striped, and the spotted, and the black, and the weaker ones are becoming the white and the black Uh, that uh, Laban can have. And so Jacob, having started off with the deck stacked against him, now has this flock of strong, speckled, striped, spotted, and black, and Laban has this weaker and more feeble flock. And then all of this, I think, is summarized in verse 43 of chapter 30, where it says, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. And so Jacob becomes... Wealthy, with a deck stacked against him, with a father-in-law who's constantly trying to cheat him and undo him, God is richly blessing Jacob. Now, we talked already before about Isaac and the, the immense blessings or the immense prosperity of Isaac. And how that immense prosperity is kind of a down payment on the promises yet to come. It's this tangible reality where God says, I made these promises. And here's proof that these promises are going to come about. Here's this prosperity, uh, this proof that you're going to inherit the land. That you're going to inherit this rich land. A land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you a down payment on that now. So we should not be trying to seek out riches and prosperity, thinking that greater faith leads to a greater bank account because the inheritance that we've been given, the down payment that we've been given on our future hope and our future reality is the spirit who dwells so richly in us through Christ Jesus. And so again, we see the second part of that promise of Abraham, the blessing now poured out on Jacob, now poured out on Jacob. After 20 years of being a servant in his father-in-law's home, He now enjoys the prosperity and the blessings that God had given to Abraham and that God had given to Isaac before him. And again, we see the promises confirmed in the reality of the life of Jacob. So this whole section and this whole scenario ends off in chapter 31 with Jacob's flight from Laban. And I'm going to try to move quickly here. And it's motivated and moved by intense jealousy on the part of Laban and his family. If you look at the first three chapters of 31, it says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now the most pivotal verse here is verse 3. Jacob has become aware of, of how the, the, the sons of Laban are now jealous of his increasing wealth and the fact that his, their father is decreasing. The one who tried to curse Jacob is now receiving a curse upon himself. And, to, and in the midst of this, in the midst of this realization that his position of favor has changed within the household, God comes to Jacob and says, now is the time to return to your father's land. This verse might seem somewhat inconsequential, but it actually is massive within this story. Because we remember what it was that sent Jacob to Badan Aram. What sent Jacob to Badan Aram was a mother who was fearing for her son's life. She was terrified that Esau was going to kill Jacob and she didn't want to be bereaved of both of her sons, one through death and one through the guilt of murder. And so she looks at Jacob and says, flee to Badan Aram. Go to Badan Aram and stay there for a time until your brother's anger turns and then I will call you back. So she says, I will call you back. But while the mother had plans over the life of Jacob, God had greater plans over Jacob's life. And Jacob's life doesn't move at the ebb and flow of his mother's plans or purposes for him. His life moves at the ebb and flow of God's sovereign will and purpose and plan over Jacob. And so in verse 3, we are reminded that these 20 years spent with Laban aren't some kind of crazy offshoot in his life. They're not some outlier, some ridiculous thing that just kind of interrupts the narrative or the flow of what God is doing. They are purposeful to what God is doing. These 20 years that that Jacob has spent under the service of Laban are nothing short of God's sovereign purpose and plan for Jacob. And now, when that has come to an end, when that time has reached its fulfillment, then God looks at him and says, Now, now is the time for you to go back to the land from which I called you. And keep in mind the promises. We've seen offspring added. We've seen material wealth and blessing added. And now he's going where? Back to the land to which God has called him from. So God keeping his promises, God bringing his promises about, God foreshadowing even what he will do for his people through the exodus. And as we move forward through chapter 31... We see that Jacob is aware of the true, pros- the true source of his prosperity. He does not credit it to his ingenuity in making them mate in front of different striped branches, but he credits his prosperity to God who has been gracious to him. Look at chapter 31, verses 4 through 10. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where the flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, that your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given it to me. Jacob understands clearly where his prosperity comes from. He understands where his blessing comes from. It doesn't come from his cunning or his ingenuity. It comes from God who has determined to do this. God who has purposed and planned to bless Jacob in this way. And so Jacob decides to flee, and this is where Laban's conniving comes back on his own head because he's moved his sheep three days journey away from Jacob, and now he goes to shear his sheep. And this gives Jacob all the time and secrecy and space needed for him to move his family and to flee from Laban. Three days later, when Laban finds out that Jacob has fled, he pursues Jacob and begins to argue with Jacob. But before he can get to Jacob, God comes to him in a dream, and he says to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God said, I will be with you. Return to the land from which you came, and I will be with you. And he's proving he is with him as he comes to Laban in a dream. He proves he is with him as Jacob prepares to meet Esau on his return home. God is faithful to his word. And so Laban overtakes Jacob. They have an exchange. Laban puts out this this kind of false excuse that you didn't give me the opportunity to send you away as a father-in-law should. But the truth is Laban had no desire whatsoever to let Jacob go. In fact, he desired to take everything that Jacob had and give it to himself. And so it ends with the two of them making a treaty and they're never to see each other again. So as we think about this in that summary, one of the things we see, as I said at first, is we see the covenantal blessings come to realization within the life of Jacob. And not only come to realization within the life of Jacob, but actually take a step forward, a big step forward. We've seen these promises move from generation to generation, beginning back in Genesis chapter 12, as God came to Abram, called him out of Ur the Chaldeans. And he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your offspring. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then we see that promise move from Abraham into Isaac. And we see that promise move then from Isaac and and into Jacob. And so we see God's covenantal blessings rolling through generations. We saw it this morning as we celebrated Kai's baptism. We rejoice in God's covenantal blessings just rolling through and moving through generation after generation. And as they come here to Uh, Jacob, it might seem that they are stalled a bit, right? Jacob has this life that's unlike any other patriarch. Abraham and Isaac, they weren't servants in someone else's home. They were masters of their own home. Yet here is Jacob spending 20 years as a servant within the house of Laban. And yet in this scene and in this scenario here, God adds to him 11 sons and one daughter. God richly blesses him in offspring, moving that promise forward. And then God richly blesses him, and material blessings, giving him flocks and female servants and riches so that God is confirming in him and to him the reality of the promises he has made to him and to his people. And it's yet another reminder for us that God is faithful to keep his promises. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of it, we as a people of God are continually encouraged and continually reminded that our God is a promise-keeping God. And and this is good for us because we live in a world of broken promises. We, We live in a world of people who do not keep their word. And sometimes that's us. right? Sometimes we're the ones who say we will do something and we fail to do what we said we will do. And so we are all too accustomed to the reality of broken promises. And so sometimes we want to push that onto God. We want to impute that to him and say, God, certainly you can't keep your promises. Certainly you won't keep your word. And yet God screams at us again and again and again and again through his word. I am the God who keeps covenant. I am the God who is faithful. Paul declares it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And of course, there's the ultimate testament of his faithfulness, the ultimate testament of his promise keeping, and that is Christ Jesus. Who came to redeem us and to cleanse us and to free us from our sin. Christ is God declaring in human form, I keep my promises. I keep my promises. And so we see that unfold in the life of Jacob here. As I said as well at the beginning, we also see the way that God works in the ebb and flow of life. I mean, this is 20 plus years in Jacob's life, from chapter 29 to 31, 20 years of life. Some of you in here aren't 20 years old. You haven't seen 20 years of life. Some of you are old enough to know what it's like to look back on 20 years of life, to actually be able to take a chunk of time and go, I can look at that 20 year period and understand that 20 year period. But here's 20 years of his life. And what's happening? What's happening? What what is happening that's visibly miraculous and and visibly spectacular and, and visibly wonderful? Really nothing. I mean, we get the impression that day after day for 20 years, Jacob wakes up and he goes to work. He goes out and he tends the sheep, takes care of the flocks. In fact, he says he works really hard. He, said, he says to Laban, slept, it went from my eyes. I couldn't sleep, I was in the cold, I was in the heat. If you lost a sheep or if something was torn by wild animals, I made it right, I took it out of my own, I made it right, I didn't charge it to you. So day in and day out, he's getting up and working. Day in and day out, he's coming home. Day in and day out, he's looking after a family. His wives are taking care of the children, they're tending the home. There's just these, these this, the, the mundane things of life that's happening. And, and yet in the midst of this, in the midst of, of, of this 20 years, God's doing something miraculous in, in Jacob's soul. It, 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 he's sanctifying him. He's working in him. He's conforming him to the image of Christ. And, and it makes me think about about our lives. And this, this isn't the only example we see. I should say that first, that Jacob's not the only example we see. Kyle read this morning from Exodus about Moses. I mean, think about Moses, right? Moses realizes who his people are and what does he do? He immediately wants to, immediately wants to step in and he immediately wants to, to make an impact. He immediately wants to do something great for his people. So when he sees one of his people being beaten, he kills the Egyptian and he, and, he, and, he, and he solves the problem, right? And then when he sees two of his brothers fighting, he comes out and he wants to step in and he wants to encourage his brothers. He wants to lead his brothers. He wants to help his brothers. And they look at him and say, who are you? You're gonna kill us too? And then what does he do? He spends the next years in Midian, a sojourner watching sheep, right? Or, or David in the field, in the field and forgotten, right? He's in the field and he's forgotten. So that Samuel comes up and he's going through the sons to, to anoint a king. And he, he, sees, he sees the oldest and he goes, certainly, this is, this is the king, right? And no, it's not him. And he goes through all of them and he's like, is there, uh, none of, it's none of them. Is there anybody else? And like, then all of a sudden, like a light goes off in somebody's brain like, oh yeah, we've got uh, little David out in the, the field just watching sheep. And is he just watching sheep, or is God preparing him for what he's called him to do? So that when he stands before Goliath, he's got a sling. And, and then he, he references how God protected him from the, the bear and the lion as he watched the sheep. And so God's working in him as he's out there just watching sheep. Or we could think of Christ as a carpenter. I mean, have we ever thought about that? Like, like <laughs> sorry, I get, sometimes I get humorous things that sneak into my mind. But I just imagine Jesus is kind of like literally waiting for like about 30 years, just kind of unemployed, just kind of sitting and waiting for God to say, all right, go. Right? That's not what he did. He worked. Most likely with his hands, day in and day out. He worked. Or as we look at the story of um, as we look at the story of Jacob here, it has a, a real kind of ring of similarity to what we see in the life of Joseph. Joseph, who's humbled through his time in prison, he's humbled through his time in service in Potiphar's house. God's working on him in those moments as he's sold into slavery to prepare him for what he's called him to do. And so God often does, I would argue, work through the most humble of means. Not through these big miraculous events in our lives, and sometimes it is that. Sometimes God puts us into something that's big, that's difficult, that's scary, and he calls on us to respond and to grow and to learn. But sometimes it's just, it's the everyday things of life. It's getting up and going to work. It's coming home and loving our wives, loving our children, sitting at family dinner, reading the Bible, loving our wives. It's our wives getting up and they're taking care of the home and they're loving our children and they're doing dishes and they're making beds and it's our kids getting up and going to school and doing their homework and coming home and being with family, playing sports. It's all these things that sometimes seem so innocuous to us that I think God is using and working in the midst of to transform and change us into the image of Christ Jesus. Because he has promised, he has promised that we would be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 29, we read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So whether we sense it or not, whether we know it or not, God is at work in us at all times to form us into the image of his Son. And sometimes that looks like 20 years just like watching sheep and having babies. And yet we rejoice in that because God is at work in us, and he is faithful to be at work in us to change us into the image of his son. And so I think this fills every aspect of our life with wonderful purpose, with wonderful purpose, that we can wake up and we can face each day going, God is going to be at work in me in this day through the things I go to, through that might seem mundane to me and purposeless to me. God's at work in them to shape me and mold me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so then we can do what Paul calls us to do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we can give glory to God in heaven, for he is at work in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for your, uh, your truth. We thank you for Christ. And Father, we thank you for not leaving us in our sin, but calling us to yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So now I speak these words of Christ over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go knowing that our Father is at work in us in all ways to conform us to the image of his son.